0: I also believe that the legal system need a, lo- a much better case managers and case managers who are not necessarily lawyers, but case managers who are trained social workers right. or community leader workers or community workers who could actually be the conduit to the justice system or legal system, broadly speaking. Yes. Because unfortunately, legal system is put into a little box of the lawyer and the judge, but it's way more complex.
1: Much broader than that. Law is only one tool and... It- it is vital that there are supports and services that surround um, participants in the justice system.
2: Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
3: My name is Julie McFarlane, and I founded the National Self-Represented Litigants Project in 2013. Newsflash! In case you haven't already heard, NSRLP has a wonderful new Executive Director, Jennifer Leach. So I should be stepping back, but remain on the board and in close, regular contact with the NSRLP team. And I am going to continue to do this podcast, which I really enjoy. I love my conversations with visionaries and influencers in the legal community and with ordinary folks just struggling to find their way through the legal system. Dana Cornwall will continue to be my co-host on many episodes and with an NSRLP research assistant, and this season, this job is being shared by Charlotte Sullivan and Shannon Meekle, bringing you our regular feature in other news. And today's correspondent is Shannon. In other news, in our last episode, which featured my conversation with Elena Luther, the director of NSRLP East, Charlotte included a story about a brand new tort of family violence in Ontario, which means that in divorces where there has been family violence, threatening or violent behavior, or a pattern of coercive control, compensation may now be awarded to the victim on top of financial responsibilities for support. As Justice Mandane said in that case, existing torts do not fully capture the cumulative harm associated with the pattern of coercion and control that lies at the heart of family violence cases and which creates the conditions of fear and helplessness. These patterns can be cyclical and subtle and often go beyond assault and battery to include complicated and prolonged psychological and financial abuse. Today's episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower looks at the work being done to protect people who find themselves in abusive and violent relationships and what the legal system can and cannot offer. I talked to Deepa Matu, the Executive Director of the Barbara Schliffler Commemorative Clinic in Toronto, which serves women who have experienced violence about the difficult choices that that clinic must make about whom it prioritizes in a system in which so many people go without legal help or support of any kind. Deepa also talks to me about what drew her to this work as a South Asian woman who was a first generation immigrant and how traditional expectations of her as a woman drove her to want to work for change. This is a theme taken up in our outro which today is contributed by Humira Jabea of West Coast Leaf. Humira is a staff lawyer for West Coast Leaf, a women's organization that pushes law reform and test cases to advance gender equality, including efforts to expand public assistance for women and families experiencing violence in British Columbia. Humira also reflects on the path that she has chosen as a second generation settler and South Asian woman who dreams of a more just and equitable society. So first, here is my conversation with Deepa Mm Matu. So Deepa, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You and I have begun to work a little bit together over the last six months or so, and it's been such a pleasure. Maybe you could just begin for people who don't know about the Schleifer Clinic and what you do. It was created, of course, following a a really horrific, a shocking event, which feels unfortunately only too familiar still. Today. So, could you just talk a little bit about what led to the establishment of the clinic back in 1985 and why it has adopted the particular goals it has?
0: Um, absolutely. And first of all, thank you so much for inviting me for, for the recording today. And it's a pleasure to be in your company. The clinic, the Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic, um, is named after Barbara Schleifer. Uh, And Barbara Schleicher herself was a feminist lawyer in making, um, and unfortunately her life was quite short on the night of her call to the bar ceremony. Mm -hmm. Um, So her friends came together to commemorate her, her life and her commitment to social justice and her feminist principles to bring together a service which would work with survivors of violence. Um, in 1985, from what I have been told, um, it had it had a community trauma impact in the community of Toronto. Um, it had uh, it had such an impact in the community of Toronto that that year, uh, the following year, uh, her the day of her her death ceremony was uh, declared as a uh, Barbara Streisand Day by the city of Toronto. So it did leave a long-lasting impact and. Uh, in the community
3: and in people's memory. And it why was, do was? Do you, Why do you think that was? Why do you think that was deeper? Because, you know, we've, we've recently had events like the terrible murder, abduction and murder of Sarah Everard in the UK that has brought a lot of attention to this is- issue of the safety of women. Why do you think this particular terrible murder had such an impact?
0: I think every time I mean, every every death of a woman and a murder, a femicide of that kind leaves a uh, community a bit shaken. But I meet with people and I listen to their stories of being in the city at that time or being in the profession at that time. I think the fact that she was a lawyer, the fact that she had a bright future ahead of her, the fact that it happened on the night of her call to the bar ceremony, when she must have, her, her day must have been filled with. So many hopes and dreams, and her family must have been so excited about what the future uh, held for her. And and um, and while I'm in the company of you, you yours here right now, you and I both know that you know becoming a lawyer right now also for women is difficult, and back then it was even more difficult. So I think all of that, those factors, along with the 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 gruesome violence that happened that night, that uh, uh, that, you know, she lost her life that night. I think all of those factors together, probably um, it was like a chill in the spine right. or the right. city of Toronto. The the team that came together to create the clinic, their vision was to create that access to justice space um, and social justice space for uh, for women in, in Toronto. Um, and a lot of work in the beginning years was around sexual violence and a lot of work in the beginning years was around uh, child, childhood sexual trauma as well. Um, the clinic was fortunate to get funding from the provincial government to start legal services um, in the area of family law and, and then immigration law and the counseling services. So that was and still remains to be the most unique thing about the clinic, that uh, the law is seen as one of the tools in the toolbox in the, in the journey of healing. Uh, but counselling and support is seen as as a very important uh, piece of the puzzle.
3: Let me ask you this, you know, sort of rather difficult practical question then Deepa, because we know that there is an enormous need for the services you offer. I mean, even just for the legal services for that alone, as well as for the other services. And I know that, you know, you are operating like every clinic with limited resources. So how do you make choices in order to maximize your effectiveness? What would you say are your kind of guiding principles for who you really can help because you cannot possibly numerically help everybody who needs it?
0: it, It's such a great question, uh, Julie, because even when I was reflecting on on things that we will talk about, um, and I was thinking about this question, I was like, this is such a brilliant question because then you are always working with um, limited resources, uh, funding which is not tenured. Uh, how How do you then plan for services for the most marginalized? So one of the things that we did in that process was to give ourselves this kind of a mandate that if there is another service in the city of Toronto who can provide that particular service same or better than us, we will make sure that we are the advocates for that service to be successfully delivered to right. the So
3: you will refer and advocate for that person to be referred? Advocate
0: yeah. is the piece that I want to emphasize on. Yes. because The, the referral is sometimes not enough because the referral creates a revolving door in the system. So for us, the emphasis is a, lot, is a lot more on advocating for services. And a simple example of that in the system is legal aid. We do a lot of advocacy with legal aid on a case-to-case basis, but also as a system planning uh, player on the table. We consult with them. We give them the the information of
3: what we are seeing on the ground. Right. Right. You're you're trying to find those gaps. You're trying to find the people that have no other means of advocacy or assistance.
0: Absolutely. So so that advocacy piece is one of the biggest mandates. But then other than that, it's definitely about... What are the other resources that the survivor has available? Can if she's not able to get any service elsewhere, we are the and we are the best service available to uh, to that experience. We will step in. Sometimes we would uh, go beyond our capacity when we see that um, the person is probably not be able to get services elsewhere or the same sensitivity, same trauma informed uh, space, right. uh, and. Around 33% of our cases are the ones where someone is using all three or four programs at the clinic.
3: Oh, that's uh, really interesting. So, so, so the legal services, the counseling, the interpretation services, the employment so, assistance, all of those pieces. And, yeah. and,
0: ha- and the housing worker, and we have right. a professional housing person. So, if, so, so that, of course, then becomes our focus and a priority client, because if that client can get one stop shop kind of uh, solution uh, with us instead of be referred somewhere else, that then becomes a priority. Right. So these are some of the factors, but the most important one, which is like a gatekeeping factor for us is the risk. So the level of risk is the first thing that we do. When a woman calls the clinic or a survivor calls the clinic, uh, the first thing that they get is a risk assessment followed by a safety planning. And that risk assessment makes a lot of decisions for us. So that outcome of that risk assessment means that are we advocating for her right away? Are we trying to get her advice in-house first? Then we will continue to do the advocacy on the side. Are we trying to get her to a shelter first? Or are we trying to get her uh, to actually speak to a counselor first? So all of that is informed by that risk assessment. So the her level
3: of risk- So basically what you're talking about, I think deeper, is like a triage that you do right at the beginning. And you're saying that the thing that you have to respond to, you know, first and above all, and you've talked about some of the other factors, is risk, which, I mean, it's a very sad reality that that makes a lot of sense. Yes. Now, I want to focus you just for a minute on the legal services part of what you do. Um, And a lot of the people listening to this today uh, are people who are themselves people who've used the the legal system to try to achieve some kind of resolution in in a different way or form and you know I think that we all know that there are all kinds of ways in which both the civil and the criminal system are not very kind and not very empathetic and certainly not very trauma-informed for the victims of violence of family violence Um, And I'm sure that you could talk for a really long time about this, but could you give me just a couple of things that really stand out for you from your clients' experiences that the legal system needs to change in order to make it more accessible, kinder and more effective for the victims of violence?
0: So definitely, I think one of the the big ones that I say, um, you know, trauma informed uh, training is definitely one of the big pieces. But this risk assessment concept or the triaging concept that we just talked about, there are ways to have simple information at hand available by all the players in the legal system, Mm -hmm. right? So, so I feel that it is if we could do one system change. Uh, other than the ongoing training on the trauma-informed practice, is to train everyone to do an assessment, not necessarily sit down and do safety planning and not necessarily sit down and go in-depth into the scenario, uh, but definitely have some tools handy available so that they can identify if this woman is going through a high-risk situation, a moderate-risk situation or a low risk situation that for this experience of survivors
3: can be a complete um, game changer game changer yeah.
0: that's exactly what I was looking yeah.
3: for yeah yeah but but deeper I'm wondering I mean some of the ways in which we know that the system but also professionals within the system unfortunately sometimes respond to people who are um, signaling for help but not necessarily talking explicitly because it's very difficult for them to do that about about risk and danger and and violence. There is such a tendency to minimize these risks for women in the culture. And there's such a tendency to say, oh, you're just having a bad phase with your partner or something ridiculous like that. So how do we make sure that those folks who are doing that risk assessment, and as you say, this would make a huge difference to the system, how do we make sure that they really know how to recognize these signs?
0: To be honest with you, I, I, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm saying it as, uh, because I understand the risk assessment um, now from close quarters, but I feel like there could be simple questions asked, which can help someone think about what can I do for this person in these five minutes that I have with them? right? And these simple questions could be right from, uh, do you have the safe safe space to go back to? Are you comfortable when you're talking to me here? Do you have someone else that you can speak to? to, What is happening? Like, these could be really, really simple questions. And I usually say no more than five questions. So I think as a system change, if we can create validation for people to say, you are okay and well within your right to ask someone these three questions and give them the right resources and right places to go to can be a complete game changer for the women but also within the legal system actors perspective it could empower a lot more people to come forward and talk about their experiences no i think
3: i think you're so right and i think that one of the things that um lawyers and I don't, you know, I can't speak maybe more broadly than that, but certainly lawyers are often, shall we say, somewhat squeamish about is asking some of those direct questions. But, you know, while understanding that there might not be enough trust created yet to be able to get a truthful answer, but at least to put the questions on the table to normalize that those are questions and to show that they are concerned, because even if that person doesn't disclose today, maybe they feel at another time they could go back and disclose later.
0: Absolutely, Julie. So rather than asking, what is your address? Is this (laughs) this your safe address? Yes. Right? When you're filling out a form for someone, I would say a a simple tweak like that can create a system change. Yes. Yeah. That's that's definitely one of the things that comes to my mind. And if I could have my wish list a bit longer, I also believe that the legal system needs a much better Case managers and case managers who are not necessarily lawyers, but case managers who are trained social workers or community leader workers or community workers who could actually be the conduit to the justice system or legal system, broadly speaking, because unfortunately legal system is put into a little box of the lawyer and the judge but it's way more much broader than
3: that so you're talking about people like community justice workers um maybe sometimes paralegals but people who aren't trained as practitioners but nonetheless can be an incredibly important sort of manager into the system and uh, i absolutely agree i think that's a huge issue yeah so well those are two great wish list items let me ask you just as a closing question, Deepa, and I'm especially interested in this, having gotten to know you a little bit in the last six months, I'm interested to know what you would say have been the most important personal and professional influences on you in your work. Because I mean, let's face it, you you have a very difficult job, You, you work on the front lines, you see an awful lot of pain, and you also manage a lot of people. So this is a very demanding place you're sitting in. What are the influences on you that have, have led you to this, this choice for you?
0: Um, you know, I when I think about that question, again, a very, very, very good question. And, and I think about that question and take a moment to, to self-reflect. I come from a system where um, the, the inequality uh, among the genders was right, um, part of my own personal living conditions. And, right. Um, I mean, the story behind my name is that, my name is Deepa, but my parents wanted a boy. So the name they had picked was Deepak. And then when I was gone, they cut that shot to Deepa. And that story was told to me without any shame, multiple
3: times. uh, Without imagining that you would feel badly about the fact you weren't a boy.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, and also that they were actually um, fueling the energy of a feminist and my inspiration as I said it's my mothers and my grandmothers I think they did enough work um, in their own little way uh, they were fighting it enough that um, I think by the time I came uh, to being an adult uh, or or a young adult I think I was ready to the fight. path
3: was ready for you
0: the path well was ready. that's
3: a great way. So understand it deeper. And I'm sure that they're extremely proud of the work that you now do. So I wanna say thank you so much for the conversation today. This has been terrific. Thanks. Thank
0: you.
3: Next, Humira Jabir of West Coast LEAF reflects on Deepa's interview and in particular, how LEAF tries to complement the work of clinics like Barbara Schiffler, by advancing an agenda for law reform.
1: Thank you, Julie, for the opportunity to be on the podcast and um, to build and share from the insights that Deepa has provided. I think there's two key aspects of what Deepa shared that very much resonate with me and connection with the work that West Coast Leaf is doing. One of them um, is that Deepa shared the importance of doing advocacy on the gaps in the justice system and mentioned legal aid in particular. That's an area of important work for West Coast Leaf and one we have been involved in for several years. But in the coming years, we'll have a test case going forward that is challenging British Columbia's family law legal aid system as unconstitutional because it discriminates against women and children who are fleeing family violence and jeopardizes the their security of the person. Really, it's very difficult to access legal aid in terms of uh, being able to demonstrate one's eligibility for that, as well as the limited number of hours that are provided in legal aid contracts. These together serve to very much harm women and children that are fleeing family violence, as these cases can be quite complex and require a dedicated lawyer uh, to assist women who are going through the, the court system at this time Many women are faced with the prospect of having to navigate legal aid system and legal system alone um, as self-represented litigants or alternatively giving up their legal rights when it's not possible to obtain a legal aid lawyer. In BC, there's a particular context with respect to severe cuts having been made to legal aid. In 2002, legal aid was cut by... 40% 40% overall, and 60% for family law legal aid. And while there have been sort of modest investments in legal aid since, there's there hasn't been a return to the robust system that is really needed to support survivors of family violence as they try to exit those relationships and secure their legal rights. Another aspect of the work that I think really touches in with what Deepa shared is that uh, law is only one tool, and. It, it is vital that there are supports and services that surround um, participants in the justice system and those who are going up against state bodies. And one uh, area of work that that really ties into for West Coast LEAF is our advocacy uh, related to reforming the child welfare system. Another uh, key aspect of that is in order to address the overrepresentation of Indigenous children in care, there's a great need for supports and services that are aimed at uh, prevention-related work and prevention-related programs that are culturally safe, that are community-based, um, that recognize Indigenous sovereignty um, and uh, Indigenous approaches to child welfare. The second aspect of uh, the interview that you were hoping for me to address was related to my own experiences as a second-generation um, immigrant, what called me towards feminism. I really liked the way that Deepa said, um, you know, what fueled uh, the, the feminism within her and in doing this work. And I think there's certainly overlaps uh, for myself with what Deepa shared in terms of, I think, growing up, I, I was very aware um, in my surroundings that as a young woman, that early marriage and the you know the lack of opportunities for further education or higher education, where it was a path that existed very close to me, I'm grateful to as as uh, Deepa is to my to my mother, for providing an example of of the importance of education and hard work and making that a priority in our family and allowing me to pursue those opportunities. Um I, I know that I'm very lucky to have had that uh, have had that um opportunity in my life. And certainly I I was surrounded by examples of that with my my aunt who I'm very proud of being the first woman to be a neurosurgeon in Pakistan and just keeping in mind as I was growing up examples of some of the women that I knew that were striking a path that was one based on their own uh, goals and, and wishes. Growing up with recognizing that gender makes a difference to the outcomes of your life is something that definitely fuels the feminist fire and makes one aware of the importance of equality. And of the ability to uh, choose one's aspirations regardless of
2: their gender. Welcome back to Another News. My name is Shannon Meikle, and I'll be your news correspondent for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. If you're not familiar, Another News is a segment that recaps access to justice news from the last few weeks. This episode, we'll be talking about some new legislation in Nova Scotia that supports families going through separation. We'll also be talking about the Ontario Superior Court's decision to return partially to in-person hearings. Finally, we'll end with some hopeful news coming from Chief Justice Richard Wagner of the Supreme Court. First up is some new family law legislation from Nova Scotia. This new legislation makes changes to the Parenting and Support Act. The new legislation introduces more positive language, changing terms like custody to parenting time and decision-making responsibility. This is being done to hopefully encourage positive parenting relationships and arrangements. The new legislation also outlines exactly what information judges need and that they should consider to make their decisions about parenting arrangements. Finally, the new legislation also requires judges to consider the best interests of the child when deciding relocation orders. While this isn't exactly SRL news, there are implications for self-reps. A lot of SRLs do litigate family law issues, so the list of factors introduced by this legislation that the courts must consider when deciding on parenting arrangements is especially interesting, because. It may make it easier for SRLs to know what evidence is needed and what will be persuasive when presenting on the issues of parenting arrangement and decision-making. Our second piece of news is that the Superior Court of Justice announced a partial in-person return to court hearings for family lawyers beginning in April 2022. Not all hearings will be conducted in person, but judges may start using their discretion when deciding which matters should be done remotely versus in person. The rationale behind this is uh, reportedly that going to court in person is kind of a solemn experience and it's an important part of legal tradition. And uh, hypothetically, it encourages sort of more robust participation. However, returning in person may also delay cases as uh, courses or courts get backlogged And it may also increase the costs of proceedings. This has implications for self-reps, of course, because the majority of self-reps are self-represented because they already struggle to afford expensive legal proceedings. Our last piece of news is a bit more positive. Chief Justice Richard Wagner has stated that he's, quote, enormously preoccupied with the access to justice issues that arise out of Canadians being forced to self-represent at the Supreme Court. Justice Wagner stated that the legal system is too inaccessible and that this lack of access is a major issue. It's a hopeful sign that a Chief Justice is acknowledging SRLs and the changes that need to be made to accommodate them and improve access to justice. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another interesting discussion.